I, I'm so bad at doing like real intros things. So I'm just going to try and I'm, I'm going to try and it's going to be really awkward, but we'll power through. Today, I have with me my good bud, Kevin Hyder. Say say hi. Hey, everybody. There we go. Uh, so we were supposed to interview you because you've got a lot of cool cool stuff going on. And then someone was so tired, he fell asleep with wine in his mouth. That's Gomer. So we don't want him to choke and die. So it's just me and Kevin. And I'm actually pretty pumped about this. And I know you're probably bummed because you want to talk to Gomer. But like you and I, so we um, we have a lot in common, and we get to hang out at least once every other month. Yeah, for some stuff that we that I do in my like jobby job, and and I always and I, and you know, so right before we started to record, I had to take both of our dogs out, and I had this thought where I was like, you know, I'm actually kind of pumped about this because every time we hang out, we always have really good chat and that's one of the favorite things about the stuff that we do is like just when we're able to chat about like fun about fun stuff so i'm kind of pumped to be able to just like sit down and just like chat with you yeah yeah no, for, I, for I, now, dude, so. I enjoy i enjoy our chats too they're usually interrupted because it's we're both kind of in like host mode yeah and yep. uh and setup mode but i yeah i really i really enjoy them so yeah so suck on that gormly uh <laughs> <laughs> um so, uh, yeah, I don't really have anything that I wanted to talk about per, per, uh, per se, but I think they're like, so let's just get the obvious out of the way. I'm pumped because I feel like this is the first pure Dayton podcast of Catching Foxes. You know, it's one of those cities that when you're growing up, you don't, you don't really know what the city has to offer because you don't do anything. You know, no. you, you, go, yeah. you go to movies – <laughs> and then, you, and then you go to the football game, and then you go to BW threes after the football. Yeah, game. exactly. And, and if you it. want to go to the if you want to go to the big screen, you you go to the Dayton Mall because they had a huge screen. Yeah, and, and then with for like every seating. Yeah, yeah. And then for everything else, you go to Cross Point because it's just what you do. Which is gone. Raw, oh, hurts my heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what would you do in fun growing? Oh, that was it. I kind of just told it. you. Yeah. Yeah. We would ride our so like we actually grew up maybe like ten minutes away I think, if that. Yeah, um, where? Because like, you lived so, in Oakwood. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. And you were in Centerville, right? No, Kettering. So oh, that's even, right. Yeah, even closer. Kettering. Like my the Alter baseball field, which is no longer there anymore. That um, now it's just like a practice football field. But they uh, that was essentially my parents backyard so all the home run balls from the baseball games would would end up in my backyard <laughs> that's awesome uh i can make this whole podcast about dayton but i won't but uh <laughs> but i really could uh really quick when like when okay so where are your parents from they're both they from, from here yeah they're both from here okay um did they ever talk about going sledding down the suicide hill suicide hill, hill. <laughs> so i've never i've never gone sledding down suicide hill my dad told me once that they they used to go i don't know i've heard a lot of stories about my dad and his friends and his brothers and i don't know how true many of them are <laughs> but he, a, yeah he I once that. said that like they found somehow like the hood of a volvo in the woods and used it as a sled on Suicide Hill, which did not end well, and it ended up with a friend being unconscious. Now, if my dad heard me say this right now, 
he might act as though that never happened or he's never told me that story before in his life because parents have a tendency to do that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I've never been sledding down it. Did you go? No, because when by the time that we were kids, so just for everyone who does not know what we are actually talking about, this this is a hill called like Suicide Hill where I believe the legend is it's like such a steep hill that when you would go and sled down it, it was extremely dangerous. And I think someone died, right? Because I, when we were kids, yeah. you were not allowed to go down that hill. Right. Yeah, it was generally off limits on snow days. Not in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't comment uh, much on the 60s. Everything wasn't really legal remember, back in the 60s. <laughs> I don't remember the 60s very well, Luke, if, if you know what I'm saying. Who does? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the things where, like, you, like it's like... Like we were the age group where all of like all, um, all of our um, parents had stories about it, but we did not because yeah, there wasn't like Dane, Ohio is a town that we, you're right when when you are growing up, there isn't anything to do besides like sports and like ride your bike and hang out until you get to high school where you replace your bike with a car and you try to talk to girls and that's like it. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of bike riding. Um... And then, did you have any friends that had Jeeps? Um, uh, uh, I did. This is going to sound really like douchey, but in Oakwood, it was more SUVs. Okay. <laughs> that's that's funny. Because yeah. um, the, the whole Jeep subculture, no offense to anybody who drives a Jeep, but it's it's a little bit weird. And I had two friends in high school that drove Jeeps. And the one friend, like he did everything that the other one did. And I kid you not, like, you know, we didn't have anything to do. And now that they have the Jeeps and we're off our bikes, we would get, some of us would get in the back of one Jeep, others would get in the back of the other Jeep. They would pull up next to each other, put in the same CD and start it at the exact same time (laughs) and just drive around. And there was so many times I'm sitting in the back of the Jeep, uncomfortable, thinking, (laughs) what, this is a complete waste of my time. Why am I... Why am I oh doing my this? gosh! Uh, do you want to know? And then I promise this will be the last Dayton story because, like I said, I could do a whole podcast about this. Uh, this is how sad Dayton, Ohio is. I remember me and my buddy Aaron uh, driving around in his Dodge Chrysler, his like '85 Dodge Chrysler, and getting very excited when Genie in a Bottle came on the radio because we were real into Christina Aguilera for all the wrong reasons, like. We kept it on like Z93 or 94.5 going, <laughs> trying to like, just like driving around talking to any girl oh that like on we could find and getting really yeah. excited when Ginny and a bottle came on because we were 16. Yeah. That's, that's so funny. <laughs> that, that's so funny. I kind of, I kind of feel like we're not yeah. selling Dayton very well. And, and maybe, and then maybe for that reason we should move on. I don't think people could handle it because the only place They'd be to like, go screw next you is and Skyline your show. banter. I'm out. I don't. I don't <laughs> think that would sit well. So I'm really envious of you because you, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, <laughs> one is that you oh, have a man. new podcast. So okay, well, first let's just like start over. So I don't know how many of our listeners have, have actually heard of you. I bet a fair amount <laughs> have, but for those who do not, like, explain a little bit of like what you do and who you are and all that good stuff. Man, I don't, I don't know where to begin. I, you know, I, so I went to Steubenville, 
Um, and I, I didn't really know you. You know, I knew who you and, and Gomer were. Um, who did it? But I, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we were. If anything, we were the faintest, the faintest of acquaintances there. But in yeah, any case, like we met a few times. Yeah, in any case, you know that was kind of in college was when I started really writing um, more songs, and you know I studied theology. But interestingly enough, um, the deeper I went into my studies, I guess, and, and the more that I started to see uh, the poetry that existed um, throughout Scripture, that kind of uh, you know, joined the new and the old that was woven throughout it, um, the less kind of overtly Christian my songs started becoming, um, which wasn't intentional. That's just kind of what happened. And um, in any case, um, you know, I was never into praise and worship music, really, never really listened to much Christian music growing up. Um, so when I got to Steubenville, that was kind of my first you know, real exposure to praise and worship. And uh, that's just, it's never really been what I've done. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, my, my faith like in, informs my art. It, it permeates it, I think, at every, every level. Um, but I've never really fit well into the box of Christian music. Um, so when people ask what I do, um, or, or if I'm, if I'm playing maybe at a, you know, a Catholic or Christian type of venue, you know, people say, oh, do you do Christian music? I say, I mean, I'm Christian and I do music, but, <laughs> but the genre, I just kind of blanket it, um, as singer songwriter, which is very, yeah. which is very ambiguous. Um, and I, I write in a wide variety of, of genres cause I enjoy a wide variety of genres. So the shortest answer to your question uh, would be I'm a singer songwriter, um, uh, recording artist, performer, and I, I just kind of have a I have a knack for, and I really enjoy uh, creative things, creative projects involving the visual and sonic arts. So that might be the most pretentious short way to say it. <laughs> no, because like I think with a lot of like your songs, because so. I remember – I can't remember if it was in college or after college that I heard that you – that you didn't – that you did music. And um, Steubenville's kind of jaded me a bit because, like, everyone played. And I was real yeah. in yeah, – like, I mean, everyone. I mean, like, I mean, like, even I could play, like, a, uh, a E chord by the time that I was done. Um, it – uh. Like I, like I remember when I first got to school. So I was a really big Jars of Clay fan up until if I left to the zoo. I love their first two oh, yeah. albums. That was that one was a little. Eh. Yeah, and I, I I honestly haven't gone back to it since it was what I think it was released in two thousand or so. I, I think so. It was their third record, right? Yeah, and it's like super like pop rock. Yeah, and it's got right? some. It's got some weird. It's got some of the weirder like experimental Beatles-esque production to it. Yeah. Um, but in uh, in kind of a blasé way. Now, I say that, I'm not quite sure what blasé means. But. <laughs> no, that's actually really good. Cause I, I, <laughs> like, I just remember being very underwhelmed by it. Yeah. But those first two Jars of Clay albums, I really like. Like, mm -hmm. I even, I think, um, 
the second one is Crazy Times, right? Or something? No, no, it's uh, that's that was the main song. Uh, this, the, well, gosh, what's the second one called? It's I don't know. called Much Afraid. Much Afraid, a, yeah, yeah. It's really cool album art, uh, especially in the late '90s. Just kind of, it was really good. So, like, anyways, like, like they were, they were kind of this more. I mean, they were such a '90s band. Like, they were a straight up coffee house band, and wrote 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 what I thought were these really great songs that as a um, junior high slash early high school kid, I just fell in love with who's kind of into his faith or, you know, kind of like really, really, really like open to that stuff. And I got to Steubenville and I remember everyone covered. Um, oh, gosh, what's this? It was track 10 on the first album. Uh, oh. Worlds Apart. Worlds Apart. Yeah. And I was so mad because I was like, this is special to me. Why are you doing this? And it just like kind of ruined it. And so like anyone who really like anyone who really played music out there, I was I was always like, how are you going to ruin the things that <laughs> I love? You know, I mean, this was besides like my two good friends who I thought were pretty good. Um, but Mike Hahn and Brian um, Kissinger. And oh, yeah. Paul. So see, I'm a little bit of like an older where like like Paul and those guys. Yeah. I was already bitter by that point in time okay. when like Paul Vogrens came. Okay. Like super bitter. And, so Paul's like, the exception to your rule then. Yeah. He's okay. kind of when I stopped being bitter a bit, but like it took a long time um, because when I got there, I was used to Christian music or specifically Christian rock being like really more of an, cause of, of the scene that I came out of more of an underground thing. And so when people started playing me like Matt Marr for the very first time, I remember being like, this isn't um, Christian music. This is mass parts. Like, it's fine. But I was really annoyed that everyone thought he was the greatest thing ever. Now, and I'm like, I think he's really good now. But at the time, I was just kind of like, this sucks. Like, who listened to this for, for fun? <laughs> it's, it is a Kyrie part from like, from like Beth. That was, I mean, his early stuff, he was with Spirit and Song, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's a very that's a very particular Catholic box when oh, you're when you're with yeah. him. I think it was his maybe the the Alive Again album. That one. Do you remember that one? The uh, I I really checked out of. I didn't pay attention okay. to any of his stuff until like I want to say like after school because I heard a song. Somehow we had a copy of a song he recorded for the Chronicles of Narnia soundtrack, and I was like blown away by it, like truly blown away. Was it on the soundtrack? I don't think it made it. It was okay. like a submission he had, you know. And and I actually met him once, and he was really nice. And and I was and I was, was uh, awesome. good buddies with, with like you know like his friends, so that were at Superville at the time. So I I was able to kind of go, oh, like what I don't like is why people like Matt Marr in two thousand one, two thousand two. You know, but I was too immature to be able to like distinguish between those two things. Sure, sure. <clears throat> See, I I was so I was so unfamiliar with the world of Christian music. I didn't know who he was um, when I got to Steubenville until I met uh, Greg Owinsky, and I kind of transferred in the same semester. And so he was one of the first friends I made. And I think at a certain point that semester, he said, "Hey, man, I'm going to pick up my friend Matt from the airport. Do you want to?" Want to ride with me? I was like, oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> and, no, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, just, I didn't know who he was. And um, But just like, you know, as a songwriter, I, I noticed a shift on his Alive Again record, which probably would have been 
circa 2008, I want to say. Okay, so that's what, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2008, 2009, something like that. That was when, like, the halfway point on that record, like, once you get to track six or seven, the songs at that point have a much more singer-songwriter type feel mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And and since then, um, yeah, that 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 aspect of, of, I think, his writing has come out a lot more. But... I haven't really heard any of his, any of his new stuff. I should I'll listen to it, but I just uh, I mean cause he is huge. Yeah, I'm, it's I mean limit this way. Back um, when I was in college, or I'll, I'll just use like early college and high school a, to have a person who was a Catholic in the Christian music world would have been unfathomable. Like it, I, I never even thought about it. It was just like not possible. Yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah. So, what do you um like it, when you say that you're the like what is a singer song um songwriter like how would you define that? Um, I think singer songwriters. I mean, it's it's kind of self explanatory, um, in that they write their own songs and they sing their own songs and they. Mm-hmm they perform their own songs. So how a lot of the, um, you know, on a, on a lot of records from big name artists, they don't necessarily write their own music. There are songwriters that work for the major labels and they kind of mm-hmm. write songs constantly. And, you know, sometimes they might be asked to write one for a specific artist's voice or sound. And, um, you know, essentially, when when the label feels like they've got a song, they can they can pitch, they can get this artist to record it, and make a lot of money with it. Then, um, that's kind of what happens. Um, <clears throat> NPR did a really interesting segment a few years ago on what it takes to make a hit for Rihanna, and this is like a um, you know. This is not verbatim. It's a very condensed version of it. But essentially, you know, to to get the hit songs for Rihanna's record, you know, they rent out these writing rooms at these studios and they hire these popular producers and popular songwriters and they come in and they take turns collaborating. They see what they can come up with. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, at the end of the week, they kind of pitch the best songs that have come out of that. And... Rihanna will record them and then they spend all this money um, getting the, getting it out there, pitching it to the radio stations to play it. Um, and I think it was like by the time her first single hits the radio, they've spent about a million dollars on it. Oh and gosh. so, you know, to what extent Rihanna ever writes any of her own music, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she's not a singer songwriter. She's a she would be a, a performer. Yeah. Um, so that might be the the difference. You know, Taylor Swift writes all of her own songs. Um, Matt Marr writes all of his own songs. Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows, they write all their own songs. Um, and a lot of the older bands like U2, Rolling Stones, they obviously, they write all their own stuff. But a lot of mm-hmm. like popular country artists and whatnot, they just don't write their own stuff. And I think... I think that's kind of the difference when people say singer songwriter. It's it generally refers to an um, an artist who 
kind of does their own thing. I might be totally off, but that's 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 what I think it is. I mean, a lot of the independent artists that I know, that's that's their thing. You know, they'll, they'll have mm-hmm. full bands and musicians around the country that play shows with them. But for the most part, they're doing their they're doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. No, I would actually agree with that. And I I think in the past there used to be this thing where it was more just a person with an acoustic guitar. And I yeah. don't know if like that because I mean it was almost like a step away from being a folk artist. And like even like those guys, the like top ones didn't always write their own stuff. Um, yeah, but you got like you got like James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot, Don mm-hmm. McLean, uh, Dan Fogelberg, like all those guys definitely would fit that that folk yeah. kind of yeah. genre. Um, but they're kind of like the the quintessential you know songwriters, mm-hmm. uh, singer songwriters of that area. Somebody or that era. Uh, somebody once told me they saw Dan Fogelberg when they were in college. He came to their college to perform, and they said it was him by himself. And he just had a, a a bunch of instruments up on the stage, and he was the only musician. And he just played, and nobody—he wasn't like super mm. popular yet, but he played for three hours, just him oh, alone. Awesome. And they said it was like the best show he's ever seen. Yeah. So that's like, I think that quintessentially is uh, is what I think of when I hear the term singer songwriter. Somebody who kind of is, for the most part, you know, doing their own thing and, and kind of hoofing it in that way. Well, I I think it's the difference between an artist and a craftsman. You know, like I would say um, someone like Rihanna, who is really good. Like, I I think she's got a like. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not trying to take anything away from her at all. But I don't know if she's necessarily trying to make a statement with everything that she does. Or it's I don't know if it really represents anything like in, in terms of the like whole package it sure it could but it's not this thing where this whole thing that's kind of like she herself has crafted and there's not anything i'm i I don't i am not trying to say that that's bad or that's wrong it's just like is what you know it's just kind of a different thing like yeah it's just a different um, thing yeah and so i think um gosh uh was my point that one of the things that i do like about like people like like um like you and the stuff that, you know, like you do is it's such a, um, you know, it's kind of weird. Cause I don't know if I would, if I would put Dave Matthews into that category that, you know, like he's a singer songwriter, but I think he does write these kind of these really he, back when I was into his stuff, uh, the songs that like he, that like he did write, they can work just as well on a guitar as they do with, you know, his like five or six piece band. Right. And I feel like with this, and I was actually kind of thinking about this when I was I'm listening to your stuff before we uh, before we uh, started to to chat, and I kind of had to thought like I don't know if like um, Kevin really fits that uh, mold or not. Where is your stuff? Can it be really adapted to, to anything? Because it sounds so cool, and it's such you could tell it's like a deliberate thing that you're that you're trying to do. Like like you know you're trying to like uh, craft a piece of art that sounds an you know exact way but you might not be able to perform that live i don't know if i like um have a question but i i <laughs> i guess i want to ask it is like when you like yeah no it's really <laughs> this is catching foxes everyone um when like you know when like you like write stuff art is what you, is what we hear 
on your on your like album is that the definitive like version of that or is that just what you wanted to put on an album at that point in time that's a loaded question um the answer is yes and no um it kind of it kind of depends on the song so mm-hmm. there are there are songs as i'm writing them you know I, i'll kind of i'll hum apart you know, along to an instrumental section or a bridge. And as I'm writing it, I'll say, okay, this, this needs a trumpet and this is the melody that it's going to play, or this needs a violin or a mandolin. Mm-hmm. And this is the trumpet. This is the solo it's going to play. Um, you know, for a lot of my songs, I'll, I'll, I'll have the music in my head for what I want the guitar solo to sound like or to play, but I'm not a lead guitarist and I generally can't play it. So on my records, wherever the lead guitar parts are simpler, I'll play them wherever they're more complex. Uh, I'll have someone else play them. Um, so, you know, there are definitely songs that as I'm writing them, it all kind of comes together in my mind how I want it to eventually sound. But then there are a lot of other songs where the way that it sounds acoustically, if you go into the studio to produce it, to really flesh it out, you could take it in any number of directions and it would sound really cool and really different no matter what you do with it. And so when you're in the studio and there's a song that you don't particularly have, you know, a fully realized vision of yet before you begin it, um, that's a whole new creative process. You know, it it takes a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but you're really exploring the space and whatever other musicians or producers you have in there with you, you know, somebody will say, Hey, can I try something? And you say, sure. And if you don't like it, you say, nah, it's not right for the song. And if you do like it, you say, yes, I like that. And sometimes, you know, a little, a little guitar riff or a little kind of drum fill or, or something that somebody adds will kind of guide you and, and let you know where the song can or, or should go from there. So honestly, it's a case by case basis. Um, I don't know what you listened to before mm-hmm. we started, but did you by any chance hear either the new world or Maureen? Did you listen to either of those? I don't think so. I think it was, uh, it was the top two on Spotify. So it was the one about beer <laughs> and then the one about the flood. <laughs> the great flood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those two, uh, the Lake of Beer, St. Bridges Fire. Um, that one, that one sounds how I always wanted it to sound like a, like a drinking song. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I knew that having the, the girl come in to play the Irish tin whistle on it would, would really give it that, um, element. And that's the only, it's the first song on that record. And it's the only one that has that kind of sound to it. Um, mm-hmm. but both of those songs are from a record I put out a few years ago called the spark, which is a double album and i was in the studio for about five straight weeks putting that whole thing together there's there's 22 tracks on it um plus a couple bonus songs and um, i miss bonus songs yeah and well they're they're easier to do when you actually have a cd um (laughs) yeah sure yeah you don't see it coming on the track list um but you know the, the two last songs that we really fleshed out on that record were the new world, which is kind of like a dark, uh, gospel piece is how I describe it. And, uh, it's very socially conscious. It deals with a lot of stuff. It deals with, uh, 
with violence, um, the political system, everything. Fight fire with fire, with fire with fire as the world goes up in flames. While the kings and their squires stand in their squares, soaked in black, golden blood. Like lambs leading lions into the free, they've all gotten lost in the flood. I said, Lord. Uh, and then a song which is the exact opposite in tone called Maureen, which is this kind of fun indie folk pop uh thing about a time I was supposed to meet a girl for breakfast and she never showed up. And so <laughs> Don't you hate it? Well it was when that happened. Yeah, if you listen to the song, it's I kinda had it coming. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I mean, you got what you deserved. Go yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Uh but in any case, both of those songs, I think they're they're two of the more uniquely produced songs on the record. And they were the last two that we did. Mm-hmm. And out of 22 songs, those were the last two that we fleshed out. And with each of them, before we started, I felt like my brain was empty. Like, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea mm-hmm. what direction to take this in. But I think because we had already done the other 20 songs, giving each its own different flavor, um, I knew to kind of avoid all those other flavors. And that gave me the chance to really kind of, um, you know... I was able to devote the rest of the time that I had in the studio to those two tracks. And I love the way that both of them turned out. So, you know, again, it's, I don't even remember what the question was, but I I still am confident that it was loaded. And that's my answer. (laughs) It didn't make a lot of sense and and was not very well (laughs) thought out, even though you're like, even though your answer was. So I thank you for that. Oh yeah. Thank you. You know what we need in the Catholic Church? More people with master's degrees in liturgy from an amazing place. The Liturgical Institute is that place. Get your master's degree in liturgy. You can do it during their summer program. They have three-week-long classes starting on June 9th. Awesome stuff. Or you can just go to take a single course. It's wonderful. The summer program is huge. The master's degree in liturgy, you can get that as well. 100% of Liturgical Institute graduates are working in a field related to the degree. That's awesome. The summer program is ideal for those who are in schools and parishes because it's only six weeks out of the summer. They have a wonderful and unique synthesis of both prayer and study. Women and men, the laity and clergy, everyone to form personal and professional relationships. It's a great environment is what I'm trying to say. This is at Mundelein. It's a beautiful campus. We have the summer course options, liturgical traditions, east and west. Awesome. Ritual, symbol, and worship. Gravy. Reconciliation, anointing, and death, pretty heavy. Music and worship, that is one of these summer courses. I could sing of your love forever, Liturgical Institute. If you're wanting to find out a little bit more, just take a class, do the whole master's program, whatever, go to liturgicalinstitute.org slash CF. That lets them know you came from us. We want to thank the fine folks at the Liturgical Institute for sponsoring this show. So when we had Derek Webb on, uh, he, he talked about how when he records and when when he records an album, when he's done with those, when he's done with his songs on, like 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 that's when this, well, that's when his songs are like for him. And then when he's done, his time with those songs are kind of over with in terms of like what they mean to him, like personally. And then when you know, like he performs them, he understands that they're not that they are not really like for him as much as it's for the audience there um do you have the same experience like when you're done with an album are like you kind of done with those some of those songs and are, and are you okay with them being whatever they are for like you know, like everyone else or are they still 
like a personal thing or, you know, somewhere in between or. Yeah. Um, as a general approach to it, I would say no. But again, I think it's kind of a song by song basis. And the reason I say that is, you know, I've, I've written songs that I've written songs that kind of in the moment, it felt more like an exercise in songwriting. Mm. So to Mm -hmm. me, I like the finished product, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily deeply personal, but with some of those songs, it was one in particular, um, it's called little child don't cry. And I wrote it in about an hour when I was in doing my semester in Austria. And, uh, you know, four years later when I record it and put it on an album, Within the span of a month of the record coming out, I had two totally different people with no no connections, you know, send me emails. They both said that they they had to pull over, that they got the album from a friend, and when that song came on, they were driving and had to pull over because uh, they were crying and couldn't wow. see, and it was dangerous for them to drive. <laughs> and that's wow. and the only now, like I don't have that huge emotional connection to that song like i don't yeah, sure. i don't play it that often but it it connects with people because of of you know for me the sentiment behind it is is very simple um that you are loved and um it it just felt simple to me and i mm-hmm. tried to communicate a very simple thing in a very simple way but to these people that you know had this absence of a father figure in their life for such a long time the way that it affected them um, is so much deeper than the way it affected me when I wrote it. And so I, 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 don't, I don't feel like when I'm done with a song that that's it. I have no more attachment to it. But I always acknowledge, and it, it's so fascinating to me, how each person responds to each song differently. And that was one thing when I first started putting out music you know, friends would tell me, hey, I really love this song. And I would say, which one didn't you like? <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think they kind of felt like that was a trap. But I'm genuinely, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. Um, if people like one of my songs, which ones don't they like? Because that gives me in, insight uh, into them, into their sensibilities. That's um, interesting. Yeah. So as a general, as a general approach, to attachment and detachment from the songs that I write, I don't, I don't take it, but I, I definitely am always very conscious and aware of the, um, the objective original intended meaning behind a song, Mm -hmm. as well as the inevitable subjective experience that, that will, you know, come out of it. Mm. So, yeah, you know, um, that kind of in a, in a, in an odd way, that actually reminds me of an experience I had. I think it was yesterday in my car. I was driving up to Dayton for for uh, for this for this like work event, and uh, I um have you heard of have you ever heard of of the band Brave Saint Saturn? You probably haven't. No, it's, it's okay. So they're a Five Run Frenzy side band. They and they were this like weird Christian ska band from the late nineties, <laughs> early two thousands that I just adore. And so this like side band was so like pretty much the like lead guy uh, got dumped by like by like his like fiance and he couldn't write like really sad ska stuff because people didn't really like it all that much. Although he did find a way to. 
Um, so he started doing this, like he started doing this, like um, his like side band, which was all his like super sad, sad stuff. And it was this whole like space theme thing, and he was supposed to do. It was supposed to be a trilogy. So he released the first one in like '99. No, I'm sorry. He, he released the first one in 2000, and then the next one in 2000 and and in, in 2003. And that was when like that was my my 12th grade year, and then my sophomore year of college. And so I really resonated with that stuff because it was like super emotional written by a guy in his 20s and as like you know pretty much still adolescent i could really get that and then he released a third one in 2008 and i was like what the hell is this <laughs> and like this makes no sense and then i was like in my car the you know the the other day and i was like hearing songs from that album and it like i got it like i don't I'm like it, it just yeah. like made sense and i was trying to understand why and then just like kind of like hit me that when he wrote that album he was in his early to mid 30s because he's about 10 years older than um than me and so wow. um and i think at 25 i just couldn't understand really sure. the emotions and then and really, I, I mean i could be wrong but i don't think i am because it just there was something about the like weight and the um like the like weight and like weariness that at 25 i just couldn't access that part of my brain yet you know i could get the angst but i couldn't get like the like weariness part right if that makes sense yeah so so your perspective on it was you might say refined once you caught up to him in age and experience exactly okay yeah yeah and it's just kind of like a cool experience. That's like, why don't, like, why? And so like, I think we're kind of hit, we're, we're like, you would say, like, why don't things hit me? It's because I really haven't been through that yet. Right. Or I just haven't had a chance to really experience it. Or there are, like, you know, like, and, and, it's, and, it's like, and it's also kind of interesting as well. And I've experienced this with the podcast a bit where, like, I will, like, share a thing that's just, like, on my mind that to me was just, like, a thought I had. And the person will hear it on the podcast. And they're like, oh, my gosh. I'm not alone, or this is a really a profound thing. And I don't, and I don't really know if it's like what I said was profound as much as it was that person was going through at that point in time. That was that was profound for them. Sure. And I think when you are like younger, especially with kind of like the you know the like kind of music that like I was into, which was so just like earnest and and emotional. There's this thing on like this is all there is, <laughs> and. <laughs> And I think it's kind of interesting where, like, I think at the time I would have thought, oh, if, like, an artist didn't really mean what they wrote, that it means that it's, like, fake. But, like, with that story, you're like, it's not. It's just you were just trying to ex- you were trying to express a thing that you knew to be, you know, to be true that, that it, like, hit a person in a, in a very profound, you know, specific way, which is kind of cool when art can do that. You know, one of the first albums that I really – really immersed myself in and focused for the first time on the lyrics and the story 
was uh, Everclear. <laughs> I had a poster of that in my room for no reason other from, than the guy had yellow glasses. Yeah, was it from the So Much for the Afterglow? Was it that poster? I think so. It's like okay. them on like a bench or something on like a train station. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, well, they yeah. that was – I think they won a bunch of Grammys for that record. But that's like, you know, I Will Buy You a New Life. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. There. It is that, that um, era. Was there also, any other Everclear era? Right, right. So Father of Mine was also on that mm, record. Mm, mm-hmm. And – that song resonated with me and it should not have because it is the exact opposite of my story. You know, in that song, it's the dad is gone. He, he's not mm-hmm. in the kid's life at all. And, uh, and, and he sings at one point, you know, uh, sometimes you would send me a birthday card with a $5 bill. You never understood me then. I guess you never will. You know, that's like, that's tragic. And it was, mm-hmm. it was so different than my experience of having a father who was involved and active and I knew loved me. It was so different that I was completely drawn to it. Mm. And as I listened to the whole album start to finish, I noticed this theme. It's, I don't think it's, it's necessarily telling a seamless story from song to song, but every, in every song there are characters who are making bad decisions and who are experiencing pain and struggles and, and suffering. And one of the songs is called white men in the black suits. And I know this is one of those songs that, you know, had some language in it. And I knew that if my parents heard me listening to it, they would not have approved, Mm -hmm. but you know, uh, there's a line in it where he's talking about the girl and, and she's, she's taken up stripping and, and he says she goes to work stripping for the rich white men. All the words they give her make her feel so soft and pretty. She wears them, but they never, ever seem to fit. And then the next part is, mm. I, think, I think it's getting better for the two of us. I think, it's, I think it's getting better almost every day. I could give a damn for what those people say. Like, there's just this, you know, this was so different from the life that I was living. But what struck me about it was that the second to last song on the album was called why I don't believe in God. Hmm. And so as this kid in eighth grade who came from a devout, you know, Catholic family, we were the kids who were always at church, you know, saying the rosary with the old people. Um, Mm -hmm. We were very involved, very active. It just like, I think it gave me at a very young, a young age, um, this understanding that not everybody comes from the same place that I come from. And I could give arguments to this person about why he should believe in God. But before I I should even attempt to do that, I got to understand like really why, you know, what's at the, what's at the heart of it. And at the heart of it on this record was pain and suffering and betrayal and never really having anyone that you could kind of trust or rely on. And you know, as as funny as it may seem to say that like this album by Everclear gave me this, this empathetic, uh, perspective on, uh, my fellow humans, like that's what happened. Yeah. That's, that's really cool that you were able to experience that in eighth grade. I never would have been able to do that. Well, that's not to say that it like, you know, in that moment translated 
to every oh, other sure. yeah. <laughs> area yeah. of yeah. my life. But that was like that was the the seed of that curiosity, that empathetic mm. curiosity was yeah. kind of planted then. No, you know what? That is a good point about like what like music can do. Like I really um so when I first got into hip hop, it was because it's what everyone like it was it, it was um gosh, this would have been like ninety eight, ninety nine when I was when I was on the football team, that's all that we listened to because we were a bunch of white like suburban dudes who were on the football team and all you, you could listen to was was like rap. And I I and I I really enjoyed it, but I think it's because I just like liked the anger behind it because I was, you know, yeah. I was like, you know, I was in high school and like what guy isn't kinda like angry. <laughs> and uh, um and but I never really understood like why it was so like harsh. And then I, I don't, I don't really know how, I think it may have been iced tea in a behind the music video thing. So, uh, it might've been like a real profound thing, but Ice T says he's the master of just one trade. H-U-S-T-L-E-R hustler. Rapping is a hustle to me. I gotta get more money than you got. I'm not one of those guys that's like, oh, I love the music. Nah, I like money. Just kind of said like, like this, like hip hop is us just explaining our life experience. And then it kind of took on a little bit of a different meaning for me. I was like, oh, so this is like just their worldview. Like, like, like this is just their experience growing up or like what – and, and it kind of helped me gain a little deeper. Um, I was able to really enjoy more of like what of like what I was hearing because it, it was not just this like bad <clears throat> to be bad kind of a thing. Yeah. If that makes sense. I have the ability to break things down so a ghetto kid can understand what rich white people see and rich white people can see what ghetto kids see. That's what I do. That's my job. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you, you can take from that, you know, you can either just outrightly blanket dismiss it uh, because it's offensive or vulgar uh, mm-hmm. or, or you don't understand it. Or you could say, man, it seems like there's a huge difference between being straight out of Compton and being straight out of Dayton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, especially it's, South Dayton, right? Right. Yeah. West yeah. Dayton, not so much, but still yeah. South Dayton. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Oh, sorry. I like uh, thought that for like half a second. I was like, oh, did that joke just bomb? I feel bad. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is how self-conscious I am. I, no, I get it. I'm, I'm overcoming a cold. I'm like constantly trying not to cough. All oh, much, no. So. <laughs> You're fine. So I uh, do want to talk about your podcast really quick here before uh, because everyone has the podcast. No, I, I, I'm I'm just kidding. So uh, when you first told me about your podcast, I felt so bad because like you're you're like one of those uh, guys who like I think I, I don't remember if I told you to start a podcast or not, but like you're one of the people that I would want to start a podcast because you just have such a, a very um, – you have like an earnest worldview. Like you really try to get to like the, the heart of things. I think, and I think that makes for, for good podcasts. So when you told me that you were going to start one, I was like, so pumped, but then I felt bad because it was right after we had an episode called all other podcasts are crap. <laughs> yeah. So, well, first of all, I appreciate that. Um, and I hope that it's true. Uh, what you just said, it um, is. In terms of, uh, see, so you, you didn't suggest to me that I start one. Um, I was actually a little bit scared to tell you that I was starting one be- <laughs> because of that episode. And I don't, I don't think I told you this, um, 
but it was actually like the idea for it uh came to me while i was listening to that episode which is <laughs> that's awesome which is so ironic and i'm not making that up um i'm like i'm just constantly kind of waiting for the next project the next kind of flash of creative inspiration to hit and at some point in that conversation you guys were talking about um entertainment and kind of to to what extent I, I don't really remember how to describe the situation all i remember is that in the course of your conversation i kept wanting you to distinguish between art and entertainment and that's valid and and um oh i remember i i think i think I, so um what i was trying to do very poorly was like get to the point of uh was i was trying i was trying to emphasize the importance of under of understanding right. and when everything's just enter when it's just entertainment there's no real like change going on or so I, I think i was just trying to because i i had i just read the book um i just read the book like musing ourselves to death which is all about how like when we take when we take the when we take the important things and just we make it entertaining we 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 strip those things of all other value because you don't really ever understand what's actually going on you're just or like, or like what a thing's about you're just being you're just being you're just being entertained. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, listening to you guys talk about it, um, it's a conversation I've had so many times with so many different people, friends, family members, um, fellow artists and songwriters. And, um, you know, I, I think when, when you, when you are creative, when you make something and, and you know where it comes from, uh, within you, you know, you, you're not as inclined to kind of take that for granted. Um, like knowing mm -hmm. where my songs come from when I hear someone else's song that really, that I like, that I speak to me, that I think I understand, mm -hmm. I want to talk to them about it. And, and I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if the line between art and entertainment or on the Venn diagram, you know, when the two can, um, intersect is when it comes to engagement or the discussion mm -hmm. kind of around mm -hmm. them. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's every, every singer songwriter, every musician knows what it's like, or I hope they do. You know, they, I'll just speak for myself. I know the difference between playing in a room for a hundred people that are dead quiet and paying attention to every single thing that I'm saying or thinking. Like mm -hmm. I know that feeling. I also know the feeling of playing in a loud crowded bar to a hundred people who don't seem like they could care any less about the songs that I'm playing. Um, and so what's the difference? You know, if I'm playing the same songs, if I'm playing the same songs in both of those, um, different settings, then the difference is the level of engagement of the audience. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of feel like, there's always background music being played really low in grocery stores. And I wonder if like the difference between, um, you know, art and entertainment or art and background noise is maybe when, 
one shopper turns to another and says, hey, you're the song playing right now. Like, what do you think this is about? I've always wondered, mm. you know, like when, when you when you don't just consume, but you let yourself kind of really digest it. Yeah. Um, when yeah. it becomes something that you can discuss and and see what kind of seeds are scattered and, and uh, have been planted throughout it and um, kind of see if you can grow them into into something else or extrapolate mm-hmm. really the themes and the, and the meat of it uh, through the course of discussion and conversation. So, yeah. yeah. I, I've been trying to do that with classical music because I find myself drawn to it. And, and I really, I mean, I, I always have been, and I probably first started to kind of get into it on, a, on just like on my own besides the school, uh, you know, like the school trip to the daylight symphony um right. oh sorry to the to the victoria theater to get to get <laughs> specific here yeah uh, <laughs> uh dayton jokes will get us dayton listeners um uh and um and i and i, and I guess one thing that really bummed me out was i was like i don't know how to do that like i don't know how to engage i don't know how to like what should i be listening for like what am i trying to find here and i think and so and so like i would agree that like when you're able to really talk about that that then it does kind of become like art because you're able to really like uh, like understand what's what's really going on i think there like is this level though within our culture that i don't know i think we're trained to say to ask did i enjoy that and let that be it as opposed to what did this thing have to say well i yeah i i think even like even before you get to the, the what what did this have to say or what do you think yeah, you know, you know, the yeah, artist was yeah, trying to say? Yeah. I think I think if even if you just say, Did you enjoy that? It's just yes. Okay. Why? Why? Sure. Like, why did you like <laughs> yeah. it? Or okay, yeah. you didn't enjoy it. Why not? What mm-hmm. did you like about it? And and as long as you're like thinking about it in terms of you know, maybe for some of us that's a reason we or I'm sorry. Maybe for some of us that's not always those aren't always questions that we can answer. Um, did you ever see the Terrence Malick film, The Tree of Life? No, but I really want to. <laughs> Have you seen any other Terrence Malick films? Um, what are his movies again? Uh, the Thin Red Line. I, okay, yes, I did see that one, and I okay. was, and and I was okay. That's that is why I wanted to ask because I thought that he made that. Yeah, and I do remember having a thought going, okay, this is really good, <laughs> but it's not great. But it might be on. But it might be on me. But I feel like this is like a B plus movie, and I'm well, sure it's. You know, I I, I kind of remember like having that thought in like high school. Like, this is good, but it is missing something, and that could be me. Okay, watch it again. B plus okay. is B plus is a really high grade to give for it, based on how you described it. The um. Well, okay. So if you've seen the Thin Red Line, all of his movies just in different settings. You know, not the context of war. They're all kind of in that same style. And so I know when The Tree of Life came out, you know, a lot of people in the Catholic circle were talking about it. Oh, you got to see The Tree of Life. And I, we were in D.C. Uh, for the 4th of July. We were doing like a tour um, in an old school bus um, at that time. And we, had, we awesome. had an off day on the 4th of July. And so this group of about 12 people had heard that The Tree of Life was really good. And they wanted to see it. And I asked, I asked one of them, I said, have you ever seen a Terrence Malick film? And he said, no. And I said, okay, 
it's going to be about three hours of <laughs> a constantly moving camera. Yep. A lot of shots of sunlight through the trees. This kind of existential, uh, very subtle, poetic voiceover narration. Um, and at one point, I think in this movie, there are dinosaurs. So if you're prepared, <laughs> as long as you understand that's what you're going into, then let's go. And, and, uh, and his stuff has like no main characters, right? At least that's what I remember about the, about the Thin Red Line was it was just like this complete, pure ensemble piece. Well, I could be yeah, wrong. Kind it's been, of, it's, no, kind it's been of. A while. So okay. that, that's how it ended up. Like okay, it, ended okay. up, it ended up being like Jim Caviezel is kind of the main mm. – kind of feels like the main character in that one. And he's very Christ-like, which is funny because when Mel Gibson saw The Thin Red Line in 98, that he didn't know who Jim Caviezel was, but he said, that's the guy that mm-hmm. I want to play Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Um, but Adrian Brody, you might not even remember him being in the movie because he has no lines. Every time you see him, he is the like this like scared – looks like he's scared and mm-hmm. is just going to die. He apparently was the lead character with the most lines. The entire narrative revolved around him, and it completely got cut in editing. And huh. he, did, he didn't know that until he took his parents to the premiere. <laughs> oh, my God. How bad would that be? <laughs> yeah, I heard John C. Riley talk about that in an interview. Um, but anyway, that's a big tangent. My point is, like, this experience with the Tree of Life, like, seeing it in the theater, every people were walking out of it. And every every ten minutes, the guy behind me would say, "What, what, <laughs> what the hell is going on right now?" And like these were the these were the the reactions we we saw with a group of twelve people when we stepped outside the theater. Um, of those twelve people, um, eight of them did not like it. Uh, me and my buddy Billy, who was studying philosophy at Notre Dame, we loved it. And there were two girls who worse had been crying for a good portion of the film and thought they really liked it but they had no idea why <laughs> isn't that like the best you're like i don't this was amazing i'm not yeah. sure why i could be wrong but i think this yeah. was amazing yeah so we stood outside the theater for probably 30 45 minutes and me and my buddy billy just were riffing back and forth talking about oh i, th- I thought he was saying this with this oh, i loved this scene and this imagery and the two girls that were crying and thought they liked it but didn't know why, they were, like, soaking up everything we were saying. And everyone else was like, when is this conversation going to end? Um, <laughs> Back to our school bus. Yeah. But this is, like, that's a great um, experiment, that movie, for, like, you know, you could show that to anybody and say and – pe- people are going to say, I like it, here's why, or I like it but I don't know why. Or people are going to say, I hate it. And here's why. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think that's how a lot of the Coen brothers in terms of their non pop films, you know, like, yeah. so because, like, you know, like every like, so I think it's every other one is like, just this is for us, one's for you, one's for us kind of a thing. And uh, I think they're ones where it's more for them. So that's like, um, gosh, would be a good example of that. It, it Inside Alan Lewin Davis, a serious man. They're really like, What? You know, I mean, as especially if you're brand new, like I just love the Coen Brothers. So I I kiss the ground that, oh, really? that they walk. Yeah, I love. That's them. so funny. I've never been a huge fan. Oh, how come? Um, it it I don't know. It might sound completely hypocritical based on everything I've I've already said oh. already. I uh, I don't know, man. I like there's something about them. Like I always feel like they're missing something, but I can't. 
Mm. I can't put my finger on it. Um, I get that. And there are a lot of films like, you know, sometimes with with a, a film or a song, you're not quite sure what the artist is trying to say with it. Yeah. But you, but you think that they are trying to say something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very rare for me seeing a Coen Brothers film that I feel like they are trying to say something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which isn't necessarily um, a good reason to not like something. No, because, but... because art in the process of creation is itself uh, a process of discovery. Mm-hmm. And to get to have a blank canvas and just throw colors on it as Pollock would do, like, you know, even abstract art, you know, you, you can look at 10 pieces of abstract art in a restaurant and you can say, I like that one. I really like that one. I don't like that one. But what's your reason for it? <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It's, yeah. All it is is color and texture. That's it. There's no narrative. Um, there's no real emotion. And so I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like impose my non super fandom of the Coen brothers on, uh, well, and I loved Hail Caesar. <laughs> See, then that's weird. Cause that's one that like a lot of people did not like. I and, love it. I think and, it's amazing. No, I do too, and I, I, I've, I've only watched it once, and I really have to go back because it's them actually trying to tackle the new testament, which I found to be fascinating, because um, so much of their stuff is more Old Testament based, and this is kind of they're trying to push towards it's. So it's, um, so yeah, you no, know, well, gosh, there are like so many places that I want to take this, but I want to respect your time as well. Uh, so oh, I'm, I, dude, I have, I'm fine. You good? All right, cool. Oh, yeah. I'm like, let's go down the Coen Brothers road. Let's make it, let's make it harder and harder for Gomer to. <laughs> the deal. Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, Sorry, Gomer. Oh, no, no. Yeah, he's fine. Um, So, okay. One thought is I think there is a thing to be said about what you prefer. Like, I just don't like techno. Okay. So we stopped off uh, talking about, about like preference. And I think there is something yeah. to like. Sometimes you just don't like um, country music. Like I didn't like old. I didn't like old. I didn't like old country music until I really understood old Black Veil, and it was through a conversation with. Uh, I think it was on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. He was interviewing June Cash or June Carter Cash, like oh, yeah. Johnny Cash's daughter, and they were talking about their like love for that um song and like what it's about. And of course, I mean, it's a very obvious song as to like what it's about. But it's something about how they love that song that like gave me like permission to go back to it and try to like hear it through like their ears. I was like, oh, that makes sense. This, this song's incredible. Oh and, yeah. And that opened up for me that type of like old time country music that just never really clicked because I was I was real into Johnny Cash, but not like the like stuff that just preceded him. I'm trying to think. I I can't think of a particular experience. But I know that I've had moments where hearing someone else talk about something and pointing out things that seem so obvious the way they talk about it that I just missed, you mm. know, and mm-hmm. like that can give you a totally different perspective on it. And I mean, you know, there's a reason that that the, that the class in high school is called music appreciation. You mm. know, it's yeah. it's not just meant to teach you um the technical aspects of music it's it's to help you know the hope is that it's explained and taught in such a way that when you listen to it you appreciate everything that goes into it yeah um 
That's a good point. I think our common ground with the Coen brothers is Hail Caesar. And, you know, funny, <laughs> it's funny enough that uh, there's one scene in it, the speech that Josh Brolin gives to Clooney at the end mm. you know, when, he, when he slaps mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and he says, just like the director does what he does and the writer and the script girl and the guy who claps the slate, you're going to do it because the picture has worth and you have worth if you serve the picture and you're never going to forget that again. And it's like, mm. that's, it's such a great speech because, uh, I think it is it the MGM logo where the lion roars. Is that it, it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And there's that Latin phrase, uh, underneath it, which is, uh, ours. Eh, I don't remember what it is, but the translation is, uh, uh art for art's sake. And it's that, mm. it's that concept. Like, I, I think a lot of people would dismiss that as kind of like, you know, a secular or a humanist version. Mm -hmm. But I think like if you can, or, or I guess I should say maybe people might dismiss that as like a secular or humanist kind of motto. But I think like if you look at artists and creators um, as imitating that particular aspect of God as an artist and a creator, um, you know, did he need to create everything that he created or did he just want to, was he just taking delight? Yeah. Was he, was he making art for art's sake? Was he just delighting in creation? And I think there is a very real, um, element of that, um, that comes into play and, uh, and, and might make, you know, might render pure escapism as not entirely void of value. No, I really do. Oh, man, there's so much here. Yeah. So it's funny that like that line in this Coen Brothers film that I actually liked made me kind of be like, OK, made me almost kind of like shrug off every criticism or complaint <laughs> that I've ever, you know, lodged against the Coen Brothers. About art actually, actually kind of reminds me of this line that I heard on the Catholic stuff. You talking about pilgrimages and why they are why they are in why they like have like value and stuff because it's you know because it's kind of a pointless thing like you are going to take time out of your life to go on this trip that's not a vacation and not a very like relaxing thing but you're doing it because because the journey itself is good yeah. and this line goes that god's paradise is a it's uh sorry i'm trying to remember how it goes god's paradise is a it's like utilitarian hell because things just like yeah. exist because they're good that they exist. There's no other point besides that. Right. And that's what I think like really like, I mean, like, isn't that art? Cause like there's like a million other things that you could be doing with your time. So yeah. Give the Coen brothers another chance. If, if you have the time, they're, they're oh, like weird. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely like I found again when I like when I like when I start to view their films through the lens of they're just trying to answer the question like what is a man or even like what makes a man. Yeah, yeah. that's really that's really interesting. So yeah, and, and and that may well that this is what I love about talking about all this stuff because <laughs> this what you just said may be the key that or I guess the lens or the filter that if I start applying it to their films I'll appreciate them. Mm -hmm. um, in a whole new way or a way that I haven't before, I guess we'll see. Um, but I think there's a quote from Martin Luther that I really like it. 
And uh, this might kind of harken back to how we started off a little bit talking about Christian music. Um, It often feels like, but I think it's kind of relevant to where we're at now in the conversation. Like, you know, I think, uh, did you know the Friday morning guys? Steve? Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Mm -hmm. I figured. Very well. Um, I think it was Steve who told me at one point that, you know, this kid came up to them after one of their shows and said, Hey, I really like that song you played about your girlfriend, but I thought you guys were like a Christian band (laughs) and they didn't know, (laughs) they didn't know how to respond to that. It's like, well, yeah, you know, Christian guys like girls and that's kind of where you came from, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. So this idea that like within the realm of, of Christian music, like it's unacceptable if God or Jesus or Lord is not, you know, used within the song. Mm -hmm. And there's this one thought I've had about that over the years is that, you know, because so much of Christian music feels like um, really kind of kind of shallow. And I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a negative way, but like um, shallow in the most vague uh, reflections or extrapolations and yeah. utterances of scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when David wrote the Psalms, he wasn't just quoting scripture like he was he was speaking from his heart like he was writing it. Mm. And um, Martin Luther has this quote that I really appreciated when I heard it. And it's that the Christian shoemaker does his duty, not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And like, I've found a lot of consolation in that. (laughs) Oh man, that is, uh, I don't know how to, that is, Man, who would have thought that this podcast would have a great uh, Martin Luther quote? Was not expecting that. <laughs> Color well, me we, impressed. We've got everybody from Martin Luther to Tarantino so far. So. Yeah, Martin Luther and Tarantino and everyone in between. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and that's why. So um, Hans Hans Erwin Balthasar has this really great uh, quote where he says, like, and he's basically talking about well, like modern era, and he says we're um, and like all of its issues, and he. And he ends it with, like, even art is forced to wear the mask of technique. And what, and that to me, like, when you hear so much about, like, and we've talked about this, like, like nauseam here before on, on our podcast. I won't go too deep in, in, into this, but like, a lot of the, like, extras that you get on, no one buys them DVDs, but like, oh man. I do, and I watch every single episode. That's awesome, dude. I, I, I miss a commentary track so much. Um, yeah. I really do. There was That was the best way to process any any type of a breakup. Just like watch the film, then watch the commentary <laughs> track, then the sequel and the commentary, and then the extended edition of of like Lord of the Rings and the commentary track. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's a that's how I spent, yeah, a lot of summers. Um <laughs> Uh, and I think it, one of the things that he's like getting at there is that with a lot of like we spend so much time talking about how a thing was made or, um, you know, like here's how they made these the special um, effects, whatever, like which is really yeah. cool. But so much of it is just like, oh, how did they do that? Which speaks to, you know, the like like scientism of our age where we're we're uh, we're very like interested about the how but not the what. Or, the, or that can be the right. temptation. And what I love about your podcast is I feel like it really emphasizes – I mean I feel like it's kind of like both. But like you really give due 
weight to the what? I, I think the, the what might be the the predominant emphasis. Um, yeah. You know, with each with each conversation that I've recorded so far, because um, I haven't I haven't released them all yet. Um, I do ask questions about the production, mm-hmm. but I only really do if there's some aspect of the production that seems like it itself is saying something. Mm. Okay. And, you know, one good example of that is in the, um, <clears throat> in the very first episode I put out, it features uh, a conversation with Alana Boudreaux, who's an amazing singer songwriter. And I asked her, you know, the, the end of her song, Controlled Burn, it ends with these notes that kind of sound irresolute, like there's something that's still kind of hanging there. And I asked her, you know, if, if that was intentional. And she, she kind of says, I don't know, but it kind of felt natural for us to go there. And the meaning that you can kind of derive from that, because there's so much at play when you're creating, like there's so much coming from beneath the surface, from the subconscious. Mm. There's so much subtext that even the artist is not aware of. Um, you know, she said, I, I think that what that speaks to is the fact that the song is ultimately about um, burning everything to the ground and starting over. It's about the ephemerality of the seasons, how they change winter, spring, summer, fall. Uh, and then it all starts back over again. And so the fact that the song ends, uh, seems to end, which was a production decision on these, uh, notes that kind of leave you hanging is in itself a way of saying like, this is all going to start over again, you know? That's cool. Yeah. And so I, I only really kind of focus on the production elements when I feel like either there's a, what that was intended to them, or there is a, what that we can kind of like, uh, I guess a, a a purpose or significance or meaning unpack a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That we can derive Mm -hmm. from it after the fact. Yeah. Um, you do what I can't do, which is the um, um, ability to give a really good compliment, but not like fanboy all over it, because you're trying to go after like a specific thing, and you can tell that you really do like. So it's so it's like not like because like whenever like I like interview stuff, I'm like, yeah, you remember we did like one album that was that was pretty cool, <laughs> and like you're like you kind of um come at it from us from the standpoint of like you're you're their like peer and you're a fan. So there's this weird element of like you like um, you understand what they're doing and what they're trying. To, so you, so you're kind of able to speak to them as an equal. You kind of have you have, you have like shared language, you know, yeah. with with an appreciation of their art. Yeah, it would it would give me a little too much credit, uh, be a little too much credit to me to say that I always understand what they're doing or what mm. they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I want, but I want to. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And I know. I know insofar as one can know, like where it all comes from with my own work and art. How do you um, listen to music when you do that? So, yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. Okay. Um, Two and a half beers in, so who knows if these are really going to make sense. When I, you know, reach out to artists and uh, re- request uh, or ask them, you know, do you, this is my podcast. Here's the trailer. Do you want to, you know, be be a part of it? Um, that request always comes with, and I would love to talk about this song with you. Mm. So at least starting out, um, I am focusing on songs that I have already been a fan of 
for usually quite a while. And so there's songs that I've already been thinking about. And even if I don't have any like concrete or well-formulated questions yet, it's not hard to kind of come up with them. Um, and, and the difference there, I think, is that when, you know, whenever if you're watching Fallon or Colbert, one of the late night guys, and they're interviewing some actor or actress about a movie that nobody's really going to see because it just doesn't look very good. You can tell that they mention the movie because they have to, and then they move on from that. Yeah. Yep. And they talk about the other things as opposed to when like Mark Hamill is on and he tries to milk as much as he can out of him about the movie because he's genuinely interested in it. Mm -hmm. And so at least, you know, getting going, like I've already gotten a lot of requests from artists saying, Hey, I'm really liking the podcast. Here's my stuff. Check it out. I'd love to be on it. Nice. And yeah, it's kind of nice. I also like, I don't want to be in that position of having to reject people. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So... I just don't answer them back whenever they email us, <laughs> which is not yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of that aspect of it, like I'm really making sure at the outset that it's stuff that I'm legitimately interested in because that will make the conversation that oh. much more interesting yeah. for the listener. Because we don't, my wife has an iPod, but we have a stereo with like a, a one disc CD changer in it. I've not seen that um, ever. Well, you love you like you love like CDs still, right? I do. I felt so, yeah. yeah. I remember you wanted to give me a, a, an album. I felt so bad. I was like, <laughs> I want to hear this, but I have nothing to listen to the song. I'm so yeah, sorry. I'm, you know, I'm finding that more and more. Even like older older people that come to shows and like my music, they say, "Well, we'd love to buy a CD, but we just bought a new car and it doesn't have a CD player." And I'm thinking, oh crap what am i gonna do in a year you know like <laughs> vinyl i will be the oh, first person I know. I know it's expensive i it's know it's so expensive i know listen it's what so if, expensive okay, don't you don't don't feel like you have to do this but i'm just saying okay. we've talked about possibly putting out like music under the catching fox's name uh -huh. but what if we just put out your album on like vinyl <laughs> your first release take it just my saying. first my first release <laughs> like oh i mean no like or like any... like vinyl uh -uh. On ours. I don't know if Gomer really wants us to do this or not, but what? <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, how do we split the cut? Like, what are the terms? Ah, that'd be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I have no Deal. idea. Do not take me up on this. Deal. <laughs> we will not follow through. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I put out two introductory episodes. I don't even think we've said the name of it. My oh, podcast yeah. <laughs> is, is called Song and Story. Yeah, please um, listen to it. It's Song crap. and Story. It's crap like all other podcasts. So, uh, <laughs> There's that. No, yours, yours. As soon as you told me, <laughs> you podcast, I was like, damn it, this is going to be good. Please don't get bigger than ours. I can't handle that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah. I want everyone else to because it is very, very good. It, there is a thing about bands when they're, when they're, when they're all, um, all related that I just like. I don't know. Like, it's, it's kind of thing like I like it when bands are, are like all best friends. I don't know yeah. why. It, it, it shouldn't make a difference at all. It's probably because I'm like horribly shallow. <laughs> but I just like I just I love it when you like have a band on stage and you can just tell like they love each other. Oh, yeah. Like they'd be hanging out if this wasn't their thing. Like, oh, like, you mean just... like the band mates? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the band members. Oh, OK. Yeah. I thought you were talking about like when one band is best friends with another well, band. No, I mean like that. And too, I was like, that's a fun. weird thing to really like. <laughs> well, well, no. OK, so this is really <laughs> weird, though. But like back in the like 90s in terms of I mean, this is true for like in like 90s, like specific genre thing. But within within the Christian rock like scene, you would find out what bands you wanted to hear by, you know, who they thanked. 
And oh, interesting. That's yeah. why I discovered so many bands. And uh, and it was just like, and if you went and saw a, if I went, so like, I can remember, uh, um, I saw, I saw like Emery, which is this, uh, they were this like huge screamo band from the aughts and they're still like around and they, and they were like at all the bands. So they, I, I saw them at Cornerstone and I, it was kind of cool because I saw them at all the other bands that like I wanted to go and see. And they seemed to be like, I'm a buddies. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like they like, they like good stuff i'll check out their music which is kind of odd but it was like when you like see bands live and when it's that small of a scene it becomes a thing where it's like if this band likes this other band i'm going to check them out because i like that band right you know so yeah yeah yeah. it's weird anyway sorry that's a really weird um tangent uh i but that's not actually what you were talking about before <laughs> you remember what <laughs> right? I said? Yeah, no. Because you're talking about the actual members of the band yeah. actually liking each yeah. other. Yeah, like right? when they're yeah. like, if yeah, if they all like each other, and if I just think it's, I just think there's something really cool about like five best friends in a band who all like. I, I think it's probably because I tend to like um, hang out with like the same people over and over and over again, and so there's something about. Uh, when you're in a groove with a person that I just love, like kind of like, I just don't yeah. love how like, you know, like you and I, like I had no doubt that we could just talk and talk and talk. It's like what we do. And it's just, it's, yeah. that's just like awesome. I and mean, you can see that on the connection in a band and they're creating this thing and they're so in tune with both the music and each other. It's just kind of cool. But there's something to be said for that. Like I, I think the, the camaraderie that you have on stage, um, and the rapport that you have with the guys that you're playing with, like the more fun that you're having together, like it, that, that absolutely translates. Yeah. Um, I agree. In live performance. Totally agree. I mean, like even if the band like isn't really getting along, but there's this thing where they like hash it out in like on stage in their songs, it kind of works too. Cause like, I've seen it with like, with like, almost with like almost certain bands that I've heard where they said, yeah, like, we hash things out through like like music, and it's what help uh, makes it good. Like, like there's something going on there that pulls them um together. It's like a weird attention kind of a thing. Oops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just broke my mic. I, I, uh, when I do full band shows, there was a period where I build them as Kevin Hyder and the guys. Nice. Which you know because there were always different guys that mm-hmm. I was playing with, um, but that started to feel a little like kind of amateur a little collegiate so i really struggled about two years ago to think of like a a really good name for the band and i made a huge list and threw it past so many friends and the one i settled on was the honest stand so kevin Hyder and the honest stand and I'll, honestly like where that comes from is the springsteen song jungle land are you familiar with jungle land huh are you familiar with Jungle Land? Uh, no, I am not. Okay. It's like a 10-minute, not quite 10-minute long, epic from the – it's the closing track on the Born to Run album. And it's it's amazing, but lyrically, you don't really know what's going on. It's just kind of this poetry, and it's kind of adventurous, and he's describing you know people in like knife fights and stuff like that. But you get the sense that it's a metaphor – and uh, what he says at the end is, um, in the in the quick of the moment, uh, in the quick of the night, they reach for the moment and try to make an honest stand. 
but they wind up wounded, not even dead, tonight in Jungle Land. And I kind of feel like I have no idea what the song is about, but knowing what went into Bruce and the band making the Born to Run record, which was huge, like he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week. Um, oh, wow. After that record. And I think the only other person to hold that distinction is Osama bin Laden. Um oh, yeah. But uh, in any case, like he was huge for that record. And the reason that it's as good as it is, is because he was convinced that if this record was a flop, the label was going to drop him and they couldn't afford that. Um, and so what Jungle Land being the last track of this massively successful record feels like um, Bruce and the band saying like, it's it's us on stage like we have to prove ourselves to them uh it's a jungle out here and all we can do is try to make an honest stand is to to kind of win them over like i have no idea if that's what the song is about but that's what i like to think it's about it's what i think it's about and so that's where i got kind of the the name when i do full band shows that's what it's referencing that's what it's referencing the fact that like you know these guys might not on stage might not play every show with me and so in that sense like whether we do well or not kind of mostly falls or or you know reflects on me and uh and uh all you can do when you're trying to win over an audience that might not be familiar with your stuff is you know try to make an honest stand so um cool dude so why don't we just end it here because so, i i would love to keep going but just realize we're at two hours so. <laughs> That's a that's a good enough episode. Uh, we will my definitely heart, have. Huh? I was gonna say my heartfelt apologies to Gomer. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, where can people find you online and like find your podcast and all that good stuff? Yeah, uh, my own website for my music is just my name, kevinheider dot com. H e i d e r, and uh, you can find links to all my music on there. It's also on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. Uh, Bandcamp, all that stuff, and uh, obviously all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, for the podcast, you can listen to them right on the website, which is songandstorypodcast.com, um, but it's also available really wherever you get your podcast fix, so iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, all that stuff. So cool and it is like like honestly it is a really good podcast so everyone please go and check that out uh, thank you man thank you dude this has been great thank i'm so sorry that it got that my like that my like <laughs> that my internet is terrible for some reason i cannot that's hear okay it could be mine because it was happening so it, from your from your end before so it could just be mine <laughs> i don't know it's fine but dude i Hopefully, again, at some point in time, uh, we should have you back on because this was really, really good, man. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, man. Likewise. I, I appreciate it. Um, catchingfoxes.fm to everyone else who wants to hear our podcast, although I don't know how you heard this with really out knowing that. Uh, give us a like, facebook.com slash Catching Foxes podcast, and if you want to support what we are doing, it really does help us out. Like with my horrible internet, uh, patreon.com slash cf. That is patreon.com slash cf. If you give ten dollars or ten dollars or like more per month, you get an extra podcast on Mondays for the most part. So, yeah, <laughs> dude, <laughs> we're kind of bad about that, but we are we are adding some stuff though. So, yeah, 
It does happen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who comes up with your episode titles? Uh, that is Gomer. Every time? Okay. Pretty much. Yeah, like okay. now. Because especially for the past probably like maybe uh, like three or four, like three or four months, the, like all of the titles are just very outlandish. Yeah, well, they're great titles. So oh, my compliments, my compliments to the chef. But I'm wondering because, uh, you know, some of them are particular to you, like something President Luke, Luke gets fired. But then some of them are also him, like Gomer loves drugs. And so, like, I know how awkward it can be to, like, make yourself kind of the, the butt end or the focus of something. Uh, <laughs> but, like, mm-hmm. it's a, it's really good when you can see that objectively, uh, you know, kind of make vanity... Re- <sighs> What's the word I'm trying to... I don't know what I'm trying to say. It has nothing to do with vanity. It's the opposite of that. But, like, just acknowledging that uh, when making yourself the focus or the butt end of a joke is objectively good and funny and the right thing to do and when it's not i really like your episode titles that's all i'm trying to say <laughs> sweet and Thank i you. overthink things about them so <laughs> that's awesome no uh there there are times when i'll say oh call it this and then he does or he doesn't so it is mostly him he's he's really good at that and, and, and i think it's good too because he'll go as like late this is why he's so tired all the time but he'll just like he won't stop editing until he's about to die oh yeah that's and how so, i then he'll, yeah, so then he'll just like have a title that thing comes out of some weird creative like genius moment where you have to have that tension. Mm-hmm.